Oh, kia ora and uh, welcome in to New Zealand Over the Horizon. I'm Bernard Hickey in glorious Auckland with Peter Bell. Peter, how's it Hi, going? Bernard, it's great to see you up here. It's a beautiful day in Auckland. Oh, much it's better wonderful. than it's been for you in Wellington this week. Oh, I'm just sick to death. <laughs> I'm keen to come to somewhere sunny and warm. Uh, and um, after that polar blast, uh, any, anywhere north is good. Although not maybe so far north in Canada and America that you're having to live in 45 degrees Celsius. That's absolutely right. 40, in fact, 49.44 is the all-time record in Canada, a record that's been 86 years in the making from a town called Lytton. People are in stadiums trying to cool down. They're opening the swimming pools early. Um, you know, and it's also a bit of a disaster because what you're seeing is, is very rapid snow melt now, of course. So um, it's clear that some of these places are also going to be worried about water. They're going to be worried about flooding. Um, it's, it's, and it's spreading. I mean, the, the key is it's going all the way from Portland right up to British Columbia uh, and presumably slightly beyond into the, into the outer reaches of, of Canada. So one wonders what's happening in the Arctic as well. Um, yeah, this and it's moving across towards the towards the east. So I think this is where it's so interesting about the climate aspect of this is that we know that these kind of heat waves have happened before, that this phenomenon has happened before, but it's the frequency, the extent, and the degree. That's um, right. That and seems to be key. when you look at all the records, we seem to be setting fresh records every month. I think three of the last five years are the hottest on record, and I see that. Um, a town in Siberia had 45 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Absolutely, and of course, the thing with Siberia is the potential for the, um, you know, for the Earth to release for the, um, uh, you know, frozen Earth to release all of its carbon. So we're looking at, you know, there's some absolute. I mean, it's very good if you want to go and dig up some um, mammoth bones, but it's extremely bad for um, releasing releasing even more carbon. Into it's, the essentially, you get to these tipping points that create yeah. feedback loops, which make it a lot worse. And we're only at 1.1 degrees. And the whole point was to stop the amount of warming getting to 1.5 degrees. And um, you can, I can sense, actually looking at financial markets and how banks and insurers and regulators and big fund managers are starting to see this, that they, then now it's past the point of, you know, this is a fashionable thing to do. This is like we're seeing in our lives every day. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting the way the insurance business is always the the early indication on this, that if the cost of insurance go up, you know, the cost of the risk goes up, these people know with climate change when they see it and they see the cost of it. The very well-dressed canaries in the mine. Mm, mm. And um, it's uh, it's interesting to see too, this week we've seen um, Joe Biden come out and try to lever into what they call a reconciliation bill, one that doesn't need um, a supermajority in the Senate. Uh, he wants to lever in his... Um, electricity market aims of getting to 100% renewable mm. by 2035, which even for New Zealand, um, we're struggling to get to that. So he's being very aggressive on it, which is, which is great. Yeah, I've been wondering about it on the New Zealand case just for, for a minute, if really the, the government was uh, bumped into or forced into doing the suspension of gas exploration by the Greens and might be regretting that. That whole issue of Huntley burning imported Indonesian coal just seems extraordinary, and I just you know we, we may want to get to a to a net zero, but you know gas for many places, particularly the UK, has been a remarkably effective transitional uh, fossil fuel. And um, in, in America, where there's plenty of gas that was being fracked up all over the place, and in Australia, where they can quite easily swap their coal for their gas, you get a, a, a real increase mm. in your um, you know, a real improvement in your emissions. And for New Zealand, it's actually quite hard because. We're so reliant on um, the dams, and while TY Point is um, chewing up 13% of our output and we can't use it, uh, we're reliant on the dams, and if there's a, a dry year, which we've had in the last 12 months or so, then you can't really rely on the uh, wind or the solar, because we have hardly any solar, and we have to go straight to the coal. Yeah. So until we get rid of TY Point, um, in a way, that last 2 or 3%, if you can use that for gas, you can um, reduce the entire cost of it. Absolutely. I just want, do you think there's any possibility that the government might retract, might go back on that exploration? I don't think so, although it's interesting. In the last week, we've seen the government grant a couple of licenses mm. for exploration. Now, this isn't, in theory, a, um, a breach of their no more uh, permits. This is a, these are old permits that have finally gotten through the process of getting yeah. approved. 
but um, certainly the, the lack of gas and the way that the current fields are running down quicker than expected mm. and the pain that's causing uh, the electricity market over the last year, I can see the government um, edging back. Yeah, I just that. wonder whether it should. I mean, it's no longer quite so reliant on the on the Greens, um, you know, who, well, exactly. who are acting much more like a pressure group now than, than proper ministers. Anyway. That's, that's right. And because the Greens have no leverage, they'll never go with the Nats. Labor can afford to effectively ignore them, knowing that, um, A, well, they have a majority anyway. But um, if they ever really need the Greens, well, the Greens will never go to the Nats. No. So you're safe to ignore them. Just, just going back for a moment to the climate change thing and that very interesting point you made about tipping points and that, that, that it sort of accelerates. Um, it's worth remembering, because I always like to bring in cultural things, the film um, The Day After Tomorrow, which is a remarkably good, uh, you know, it's sort of, it's somewhat consolidated, you know, it turns into a sort of 24 or 48 hour period, the imminent tipping of the, of the climate into crisis. Uh, interestingly, of course, it was made by 20th Century Fox, which at that point was owned, <laughs> owned by Rupert Murdoch, who is a well-known climate, climate change denier. But it's still quite a spectacular uh, portrayal really of that uh, the speed at which some of these changes could happen because I think what you know we tend to think uh, as with all difficult government problems or problems facing society that the ones that are so huge always seem in the distance they're not immediate but a fact an, an event like this shows us that it is to some extent right on our laps right now. 46 degrees Celsius in a place that's not set up for it mm. A, one of the horrible feedback loops is the first thing people do when things get too hot is buy an air conditioner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, this is another thing because it's causing phenomenal electricity problems, um, particularly on that on that western seaboard in the United States. Yeah, and last night New Zealand um, used a record amount of power mm. dealing with this polar blast coming up through the country. So sadly, we burnt an awful lot of coal mm. last night. Um, just uh, coming back on to the, um, the global scene and looking at what's happening uh, in Africa, you, in your uh, spin-off uh, weekly bulletin this week, you, you had a, a really good look at um, the awful things going on in Central Africa and other parts of Africa. There's a lot of you know, wars and conflicts, which unfortunately tends to sort of glaze past us. Um, but yeah, they do. They do. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to mention this is that is, uh, is this is really about the Central African Republic, but it's really about a kind of equatorial strip right across um, the African continent from east, from east to west, you know, really from Cameroon all the way across to Djibouti. And it's because it's contested. It is south of, it's this, well, part of it is this extraordinary area called the Sahel, which um, really runs pretty much from uh, south of Morocco and Libya down to Chad, Niger, and then on towards the Central African Republic. And these are unbelievably dangerous uh, places at the moment. The French have been in Niger and Mali for a couple of years now. They've said they're pulling out. They've had the most extraordinary confrontations with Islamic guerrillas who, are, you know, who can move incredibly freely across huge areas. Um, of course, there were three United States soldiers killed in uh, what was intended to be a secret mission in Niger, but they were killed by Islamic, Islamic um, terrorists at that time. And of course, if you go even further over, you get to Djibouti on the Horn of Africa, where you've got the most extraordinary sort of contested area there now, where China, uh, the UAE, the United States, Britain, France are all building or have built military bases in or around Djibouti, which is that tiny little country on the point of, on the, point of the Horn of Africa which um, you know, has a controlling kind of aspect on the Red Sea and the movement through the, through the Suez Canal and all of that, so incredibly strategic. And the thing that I was bringing up uh, in the, in the spin-off piece, and again, it's the sort of thing I'm, I try to do reasonably regularly, which is shine a light on a not particularly uh, well-covered area. The Central, uh, Central uh, African Republic is a, is a basket case, and Russia, or Russia's proxies through its own mercenary organizations is extensively contributing to that. It's yeah, a area rich in diamonds, um, and it's also a, a subtle or a clever way for Russia itself to put a little marker down in that, in that region where it knows the United States and France are, are operative, but also it gives them a little bit of official deniability as well because it's done through this uh, remarkable mercenary group called the Wagner Group. And uh, you think of these mercenaries as, you know, um, completely loose cannons, nothing to do with the government. But, of course, um, many of them are ex, um, 
special services or um, military, and, and they may be wearing some form of uniform that may not have a flag on it, but the connections are different. Yeah, well, they've also been the same people from the Wagner Group or the same people who are in the Wagner Group has, have also been in uh, eastern Ukraine where they um, you know, have taken part in the Russian um, seizing of land from, from Ukraine and the ongoing conflict there. They were involved in Crimea. And of course, this, it just brings back memories of this extraordinary thing in the Crimea where uh, when the Russians went in and took the Crimea, um, they were called little green men. There were just lots of soldiers that uh, had no insignia on them. I'm not necessarily saying they were mercenaries, but they had no insignia. Russia denied it was their people until um, the Wees worked, and they regarded that as a hilarious move to you know, confuse. It was all part of their uh, very clever asymmetric warfare. Um, and and, um, and when, you've, when you catch these people, you know, in this in this inhospitable, dangerous, uh, uh, difficult place. Um, what sort of things do they do they say? Well, it was the hilarious one this week, which Reuters reported from Chad, which you know, Chad is one of the one of those countries we forget about. Former French colony, absolutely enormous. Um, again, riddled with human trafficking pathways, Islamic terrorism pathways. You name it, everything is happening there, one way or another, under you know, out of the out of the guise of out of the view of anybody. Um, and so a bunch of uh, Russians were picked up there by the local authorities and they said they were tourists. Uh, and this was the, the quote, quotes, we decided this time to visit the Republic of Chad because it is very interesting, Alexei Kamaranzov told Reuters. Usually world travelers do not visit, do not visit the Republic of Chad because it's not the normal route. But I checked and I saw Chad is very rich in natural sites. And it, what I loved about this is it's, it's extraordinarily reminiscent of the two uh, FSB security agents who were accused of poisoning the um, uh, Sergei Skripal and his daughter, the um, uh, spy who had defected, and he was poisoned, if you recall, with Novichok in Salisbury. And they said, we're just tourists and we went to visit the cathedral, which is a lovely cathedral. They knew how, how tall the spire was, and that was the reason that two FSB agents were in Salisbury, coincidentally, at the time that Sergei Skripal was poisoned. Fantastic tourism. Um, by the way, there's an excellent dramatisation on um, British television, I think it was a BBC thing, which uh, did a um, behind the scenes of the British response to the Novichok poisoning. Because of course for a, a few days they had no idea what it was people were dying of, um, although they suspected it was some sort of um, chemical weapons attack. And in many ways the, the, the problems they faced in the issues in dealing with it were very um, prescient around um, COVID-19, you know. In a sense, yeah. Well, also, what was weird about, about it being in Salisbury and led to all sorts of conspiracy theories is that the British Chemical Weapons Detection Lab, Porton Down, is in Salisbury, or very close to Salisbury. And so um, even Jeremy Corbyn, I think, suggested that it might have escaped from Porton Down and not, in fact, been a Russian, a Russian plant. And of course, the trouble is, only, you know, the Russians developed Novichok. Really, only they know how to use it. Um, and of course, the, the latest deployment that we know of, and which was the attempt to kill um, Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader, by rubbing it inside his underpants, which was a which is a kind of brutal way to go. But I'm sure it's deeply effective. Yeah, I remember as a kid there was the whole um, uh, thing where they pulled the underpants up over your over your over your ears, and it was rather painful, but not yes, quite that. Yes, I think bad. we call that a wedgie. I've a never, wedgie. unfortunately, I've never experienced it. Yes. Another chop wedgie would not Another be no. Uh, by the way, that um, excellent series is called The Salisbury Poisonings and um, was produced on BBC. Um, uh, Google it to find where you can stream it. It's very, very good. Now, uh, on from uh, Russia and um, into the issue of Donald Trump. He's back. What's going on? Yeah, well, he's, it just, he's, his discussion about him is back. I mean, he is kind of back. He's, he's um, started to campaign a bit more. He's spreading the same old lie, the big lie about um, the election being stolen. Just on that subject, there is an extraordinary New York Times 42-minute video, which is a compilation or a superb editing of virtually every piece of video they've been able to take from uh, the people who invaded the, um, the Capitol on January the 6th, as well as the media. And it is a, the most extraordinary plotting together of the moment-by-moment -moment invasion, the identification of who was involved. And I can tell you, it was an insurrection. It was a conspiracy. It was not just, uh, as I saw today, somebody doing basically doing a guided tour of the, or a self-guided tour of the Capitol. Um, 
Yeah, the thing I, I love about uh, Trump at the moment is that um, there's a new book out about him. And Michael, there's a guy, a guy called Michael Wolf, who uh, oddly is a friend of mine, and he's written it's his third book on the Trump presidency. His first one, Fire at the Fire and Fury, uh, did incredibly well. The second one was not quite so successful, but this one I suspect is going to um, is 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 going to go off go off with a bang. Um, he describes as so Ma Michael's. Journalism is sometimes criticised by what he calls the Church of Journalism, um, because Michael is a, he's very much like Tom Wolfe, actually, uh, who, who along with others invented the concept of new of the new journalism. So, Michael Snuffers tends to be the sweep of history. You don't necessarily know who he's quoting, but the quotes are really good, <laughs> and they all attach beautifully to the story. So. It, 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 there's a fantastic scene in an excerpt that is of the book that is published this week in the uh, New York magazine, where Trump riles up all of those protesters on January the sixth, and then starts to realise just how appalling they are—that they are a bunch of tattooed, tattooed, horned lunatics. Uh, and there's a quote in there from him, which because he starts to realise that it's all going to, you know, this is going to be the defining thing of his presidency, and he says, "Quotes: This looks terrible. This is really bad." Who are these people? These aren't our people. These idiots with these outfits, they look like Democrats. <laughs> They're not wearing suits. Yeah. Where's their fake tan? Yeah. Uh, it's, if it wasn't so painful, it would be, of course, hilarious. Um, and the fact that, of course, they're all um, live streaming the revolution. That's right. That's and, right. Well, you know, of course, as we know, social media has allowed all these groups to... to um, to connect, to find new followers, to spread their conspiracies, whether it's QAnon or all of the others. And, and what's, what's remarkable about this uh, New York Times video at the moment, this, this compilation and the data work that they've done, is it just shows how much this was expected. This was not spontaneous. It was planned. It was organized. It wasn't necessarily Trump organizing it. He certainly provided the catalyst for it and the inspiration with his words, as did Rudy Giuliani. Um, but it was a, it was a near, near military precision. Of course, one of the reasons it had some military precision is that there were a lot of either would-be or pretend or actual former military people there and even some serving people. Yeah, and of course there's an awful lot of um, people in America who are ex-military um, for all the right or the wrong reasons. It actually reminded me that New York Times um, documentary um, of that amazing piece of uh, spoken word um, uh, music, I suppose. Gil Scott here. Ah, oh, yes. The revolution will, will will not be televised. In fact, this, this of course, the, the, the revolution was televised. That's right. Yeah. Um, no. And uh, Trump is um, is back, and the Republicans uh, are still mired in um, his uh, misery and and the history of Trump. But uh, a blast from the past uh, came up today with the death at the age of, I think, 88, 88 yeah. of um, Donald Rumsfeld, the uh, now famous Secretary of Defense who effectively dragged America into Iraq. Iraq, Afghanistan, torture, Guantanamo Bay, you name it, he was in it. And he would write handwritten notes that said things like, why are we only making these, these people stand for four hours? That doesn't, stand near, doesn't seem nearly enough. Um, waterboarding, you remember that. You know, he, he really shifted the paradigm of what was possible for the military to do with you know disastrous consequences all around. And of course he's a really interesting person because he was the youngest defence secretary under, under um, Gerald Ford. Um, so he's a real power operator. I, I think of him as a sort of Sansa Belt man because there's this group of you know late middle-aged old Americans who wear a weird kind of trouser that you know kind of hides their bellies. Uh, and they're kind of weird self-supporting pants, and they just look pretty dreadful. In fact, if you look at Donald Trump, you can kind of see the, the tailoring that I'm talking about. But what we all remembered um, Rumsfeld for, apart from this extraordinary legacy of the, of the longest uh, conflict in American history in Afghanistan, uh, not to mention Iraq, um, is his wonderful comment about the known unknown. So I just thought I'd read out Bernard the... Well, one, 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 one thing, yeah, I'll read, I'll read out his, uh, the full quote, which is a beauty. Uh, and then I want to tell you about an excellent piece of reporting on this. And so the quote, which we often don't see, although there's a wonderful piece of art. If you Google uh, John Reynolds, the New Zealand artist, and known unknowns, he made a fantastic series of really important New Zealand artworks about that phrase. And here was what Rumsfeld said in detail. Reports that say that something hasn't happened are always interesting to me because, as we know, 
there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know that there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know that there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> so if you, if you, if you I mean, it's that, brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant. And it, it, it uncovers a lot about um, uncertainty and about um, how you make decisions. I mean, he was obviously incredibly clever. Oh, he's, yes, incredibly clever and, and incredibly right-wing and incredibly eager to use the for, you know, to, to un unlock the forces, unleash uh, the fourth, the military forces. You know, he'd really and and to to be a hard man against um, what he perceived to be terrorists. Although we now know, of course, because they objected at the time, that most of most intelligence experts knew that torture didn't work and know that torture didn't work. It's a it's a it's a kind of given in that business. But you know, he wasn't uh, open to that. So let me just tell you what Teen Vogue, which is a surprisingly good uh, online magazine in the U in the U.S., said, and they've got a bit of controversy for this. Uh, accused war criminal and torture defender dead at 88. Yeah. Yeah, well, it turns out there was one known, known is that um, there would be death to come. Uh, we're sort of, in a way, lucky to get away with that worse on Rumsfeld because he, of course, wanted to go into Iran as well. And so did Bolton. And Cheney. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I think we are in a sense, although if you... Uh, one thing really... Yeah, I remember at the time I think that the invasion of Afghanistan in order to clear um, Osama bin Laden and his uh, men out of um, Tora Bora was understandable, entirely understandable. However, 20 years later, we're still there, or actually we were still there until very recently, uh, and by that I mean the West really, but also New Zealand. And Iraq was a completely made up, unnecessary invasion, which has left Iraq, neighboring Syria, um, you know, God knows where else really, in absolute crisis. Um, you know, it is a horrible, horrible legacy in Iraq that was unnecessary. I mean, we have to wonder, given the time that's elapsed, whether the, the you know, the uh, uh, the end of Saddam Hussein would have come anyway, and that we didn't need to need to do that uh, hideous, full invasion, takeover, and as you might recall, um, the takeover with really no plan as to what to do next, what would happen after after the US had won that conflict. And the essential lie at the heart of it was the intelligence, supposed, that uh, there were weapons of mass destruction, mm. which, of course, there weren't. Um, for someone who seemed to know a lot about known unknowns, <laughs> he should have known that this was more unknown than it, we all thought. And uh, when you think about if history had taken a different turn, if they hadn't gone into Iraq, we, I don't think we would have had Trump. I don't think we would have had this loss of um, faith in the American government that we've seen over the last uh, decade, and of course the amount of money that was spent. Yeah, it's absolutely, and of course China and Russia have not had those kind of expenses, certainly not since, I mean that's why Russia pulled out of Afghanistan when it did. Um, I think going back to that period in Iraq, the only people who come out of that entire episode with any dignity, dignity at all is uh, Hans Blix, who's, um, if you, who you might remember was a a United Nations weapons inspector who saw no evidence, and he was absolutely he and his team were absolutely pilloried by the U.S. by Rumsfeld and Cheney and so on because they were so that the decision had been made, and we know the decision had been made to invade. It was never you know they never sought another UN resolution. They uh, cracked all over the the weapons inspectors, and of course Tony Blair's uh, dodgy dossier also laid the groundwork for British involvement. And you know Tony Blair's never never recovered from that, and nor has the Labour Party, and nor has the respect for the British government as well. So Colin I, Powell, I right. and Colin Powell's mm -hmm. an, another um, piece of collateral damage to that whole process. Um, speaking of loss of faith in um, America's institutions, Michael Lewis, frankly my favourite non-fiction author uh, around at the moment, the guy behind the big short, um, the Flash Boys, and of course um, the great... Uh, the great money money ball stories. Usually, there's a Brad Pitt character in the movies that he does. Um, I still think The Big Short is is an essential piece of pseudo journalism about how the global financial crisis um, played out and why um, there's still such a sense of betrayal by particularly um, poorer Americans who paid the price and those who. Uh, who organised the fraud and um, theft of billions of dollars, got away with it, essentially. 
they didn't have to go to prison. But Michael Lewis has done another fantastic um, book on uh, the, those horrible few months before and at the beginning of COVID in America. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, it's, it's you know, as with most of Michael's books, they're usually about uh, a group of maverick Americans who um, uh, prove that there are a lot of idiots elsewhere and some of them are quite handsome and so on. He, Michael has a tendency to, sli- I do know him too, has a tendency to slightly fall in love with his own subject. But in this case, it is it is very American. And it had, you know, some of the international epidemiologists and modelers like um, uh, Neil Ferguson in the UK do get a mention, but pretty much it's about a group, a sort of skunk works, which ends up inside the White House thanks to George George W. Bush having read a book about the 1918 flu pandemic and realizing that he, there was no preparation for it. So he created this team which went and did a pandemic preparation project inside the White House and it wrote the book on how to how to how to handle a pandemic. And it was part of the national security apparatus under under Obama. It was kept preserved through the Obama presidency, and it was shut down. Uh, the, the day after John Bolton took over uh, as National Security Advisor in the United States, um, just as COVID was emerging. Well, the, the, the people who come out well of this are all these, um, uh, I think he calls them redneck, redneck epidemiologists and a couple of rather brave people who he describes in fabulous detail and who are wonderful characters. The people who come out really badly are the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, which sounds ridiculously bureaucratic, pompous, arrogant, and also increasingly politically driven, as we saw at that time. And I think we now know quite why the CDC was so useless, particularly on testing. But what what I found really useful reading this um, is it gives the lie to quite a few of the COVID deniers that I know and see on Twitter, uh, and also the anti-lockdown crowd, who say this is just a gigantic experiment, nothing like this has ever been done, there's no modelling which proves that this is the way to go. There is modelling which proves that this is the way to go. The pandemic... Um, uh, playbook, which was you know ten years old by the time uh, Trump Trump came in, is a well-trodden and proven system. Partly because they based it on what happened in the 1918 flu pandemic, particularly the difference between the way Pennsylvania or um, uh, yeah Pencil- uh, the way um, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania handled the 1918 uh, flu epidemic um, as opposed to St. Louis. And the, the, they used the, the, the different behaviour of those two cities where essentially St. Louis did uh, a, a huge amount of uh, social separation and uh, what we now know as, um, as lockdown. Uh, and, it's, and it performed far better in terms of the number of dead than, than St. Louis did. But in that particular case, they also worked out that children were a phenomenal vector. And that's, that's one thing I'm slightly worried about when I look at the UK at the moment, which is where I normally live, but I'm, I'm here in, uh, in Jacinda's COVID-free paradise. Thank you. Um, the Delta variant is uh, rampant in the UK. The UK has done very, very well in vaccinations. Um, the number of hospitalizations is very, very low, but the number of cases is spiraling up. Um, We've got 26,500 cases in the UK yesterday. That's up 9,000 from the last week. And remember, under the way this works, depending on the level of, to some extent, on the level of vaccination, it'll double every seven days, every seven or eight days. So, and that becomes, you know, that exponential thing. And there is still, you know, a, a significant, I think it's about 38% of the UK population that has had no shots yet. Um, ma- you know, the majority has now had, the, sorry, the majority of adults have now had the, uh, have now had two doses. But, you know, there's a significant group out there, particularly kids who can pass it on, who are going back to school. And um, it's quite difficult, we now now realise, to get beyond that sort of 50, 60% plateau mm. up to the 70, 80% you need for what? For herd immunity. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think herd immunity is a bit of a myth and a dream in this. Of course, it works both ways because we know one of the reasons why the UK failed uh, last year was because it was was looking at the way Sweden, the Swede, what's called the Sweden model, where they, in a sense, tried to achieve herd immunity through getting the disease. Um, and it's pretty clear that that doesn't work because we still don't know what period of uh, immunity uh, having having had the infection confers. We don't know whether it's six months or 12 months. Although, of course, what we now do know is that the length of um, uh, benefit conferred by the vaccines seems to be you know, significant and probably a number of years, although it would appear that for things like the Delta variant and the next variant that comes along, because it will, we're going to need top-ups. 
Yeah, it's interesting that one piece of good news this week is that this a study was done on mixing and matching. Mm. You know, you're doing a cocktail of drugs, and it turns out that's even more effective. Yeah, it does seem. It, I think that is really interesting. I, I, I still think New Zealand made an interesting and ultimately the right call to go to go with solely the Pfizer. Uh, I've seen some criticism of that because essentially the idea is that we will send the AstraZeneca um, uh, vaccines that we bought to the Pacific. That's not because they're you know second rate or anything like that. It's because they they work at room temperatures and they can be stored at room pretty much at room, room temperature or at least in normal fridges. Um, and I and I just think in, with the possibility in New Zealand of some significant vaccine hesitancy, particularly driven by some of the conspiracy nutters out there who are quite prominent in various areas, um, that we've got to be really careful about anything that could cause people to become more vaccine hesitant than they already are. So I think that's another reason why the uh, Maori and Pacifica community have particularly been targeted early in the vaccination campaign. I just want mine as yeah. soon as possible, please. Yes, that's, that's right. Uh, yes. Uh, and the sooner the better for everyone. You do you do wonder about the one vaccine strategy, and um, we've gotten fresh uh, data this today that the vaccination rates are among Maori and Pacifica and young people is extremely low, much lower than we expected. And South Auckland, in particular, has had a poor um, vaccination um, success rate so far. For me, this is um, the big concern around COVID is the intergenerational effects in the long run mm -hmm. that will hit the young hardest. Not just in terms of, um, you know, if, if, if they get COVID, because long COVID seems to affect the young uh, w worse than others. But uh, I've done some um, reporting today on the uh, financial uh, tally so far mm. in the COVID crisis. Uh, how New Zealand has uh, done since COVID in terms of what's happened to pe people's wealth and incomes. We know now from the um, CoreLogic figures for June and from Reserve Bank figures that um, when you take into account the growth in the housing market, it's now worth $1.5 trillion. And you take into account the rise in share prices over the last year, again, thanks to central banks and governments mm. basically plunging, you know, pushing money into asset prices. Exactly. Yeah. Pumping freshly printed cash into asset prices to um, rescue economies through the wealth effect. So that did a great job. I mean, in a way, you've got to sort of admire the um, chutzpah of it all and the fact that it was effective. You know, we had not had a depression. And you could argue, and the Reserve Bank here does, that hey, um, uh, low unemployment is better than anything That's in terms right. of avoiding... Well, it appears we're actually reaching full, full employment, which, yeah. is a, which is another risk. And we've got this weird emerging immigration policy of um, supposedly only wanting kind of high net worth, high value, supposedly high value individuals, as opposed to um, Filipino dairy, dairy farm workers and Argentinian gauchos. Yeah. Uh, whether that actually turns into a real policy... At the moment, it's moot because not many people can get in. But um, I think this will be one of the real points of tension between the business community and the government over the next couple of years, where the um, demand and the shortages of, of skilled and unskilled labour mm. are immense. And the uh, success that businesses have had over the last decade in filling their labour shortages from overseas with temporary workers means that they're going to have to go cold turkey. They've been forced to go cold turkey by COVID, but now the government wants to turn the, the COVID cold turkey into a real cold turkey. And I think that will be really hard for the government to do because um, a lot of the young people who are graduating into the workforce on low incomes, having to compete with those people coming in on temporary work visas, have had an awful COVID. They have seen their incomes hit hard, particularly if they're in the gig economy, that you know, one or two of their three or four jobs a day. But are they are they actually competing against um, Tongan or Vanuatan grape pickers and grape pruners, or are they competing against the Filipino workers that are building most of Wynyard Quarter? Uh, in construction, um, for those people who choose not to be accountants or um, whatever it is they're doing and go into construction, yes, there is some competition. Uh, certainly in services, in retail. Um, and in uh, a lot of IT type services, mm -hmm. lower skilled jobs, there is competition there. And um, what it does is it has a general, a generally depressing cooling effect on wage inflation. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Productivity Commission is looking at. Um, because 
I did the numbers. Um, the young have done awfully during this COVID period where those who own assets, typically those who own uh, houses and shares, their net worth has increased by over $300 billion in the last year, an average of around about $92,000 per person for those people who own assets. Whereas those people who are on benefits or low income, um, they, they've received, in effect, absolutely nothing from the government. Mm -hmm. There was about $2,500 worth of cash grants in the form of um, winter energy payments and $25 a week increases in benefits. But that was chewed up completely. Yeah, I've, I've, you know, we've worked for the, for the improvement in the value of our houses, Bernard. You know, we, 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 we're boomers. We bought them when we, when we, you know, put, we socked away our, our cash and... Uh, we in worked hard. Invested in our property. We worked hard for the money, as we, the song goes. We worked hard for the money. Hopefully we, not the way that I hard am, for the money song goes. But. Yes. I am personally responsible for the global fall in interest rates, and mm. I think I need the credit for that. And um, and I've received it. I'm very grateful <laughs> for the unearned wealth that has landed on my head. Um, and it's not just a little bit of wealth. It um, uh, For those who own property in New Zealand, it's over $300 billion. And for those... Huge. I wish, no, um, about, on average, about $90,000 each. So mm. people who own property earned more from the asset appreciation than they did from their real jobs. So what do you think, you know, I mean, we, we joke about the whole boomer thing, and I, I was amused the other day that um, Chloe Swarbrick liked and, re, and re, retweeted uh, something I put out. Um, and, of course, we've also got Raf uh, on, the, on the clubhouse now who, who, you know, made a drone attack on us last week. Um uh, and Jonathan, Jonathan, our most loyal listener, is still there as well. But what, what's this doing, do you think, to the egalitarian nature of New Zealand? Which uh, I'm, I'm increasingly thinking that my, my childhood was a myth. But um, what's this doing, do you think? I think it's changing the way that we see ourselves. And uh, it was interesting in um, some research I did for my podcast last week, I talked to Professor Susan Morton, who mm. is running the Growing Up in New Zealand Longitudinal Study, where they've followed a bunch of babies born in 2008-2009. They've you know, interviewed them, measured them, found out which hospitals they went to, how they did at school for 10 years now. The most telling and moving thing for me in talking to her was they asked the parents of those kids who were born in 2008-2009, what are the hopes for your future and for the future of your kids. And understand what moved to Brisbane? No, it was, I'm going to grow up in New Zealand and have a wonderful life and my main aim is to make life better for my kids than it was mm. for me, to make sure they have a stable, warm, great place to grow up, that they have but a great education. this is the education. generation that that's, you know, that, that's worldwide, that, that, is, that isn't going to be the case for this next generation, that's, it would appear. It's the first generation since the war, I think. That's, that hasn't. that's true. And for those people who have, um, for no good work of their own, become suddenly stupendously rich. Now the task over the next 20 years is to give up some of that wealth to give the next generation a chance. Or to build some higher barbed wire fences and put some cameras around oh, your house. Well, talk about giving up hope. Or your houses, sorry. <laughs> that's right. I mean, that, that, that's, uh, she, she was saying that those parents in 2008-2009 had hope. Uh, but unfortunately, 40% of those kids, about 6,000 um, followed, in uh, Waikato and uh, South Auckland, 6,000 of those kids, 40% of them were living in cold, mouldy, dangerous private rentals, mm -hmm. and a good chunk of them had to go to hospital with preventable skin and chest infections that led to you know, stays in hospital. They are now um, achieving at, at lower levels at school. Often they're bouncing from house mm -hmm. to house if they get kicked out by private Landlords, um, so you said private landlords because I'm just going to bring something in here because I think we should we should uh, just have one do, address one final area before we ask the lovely people who are in there to have a chat with us. But um, of course, there is an alternative, and that alternative is communism. And, uh, oh, no, this is, this I, is the this is the uh, the week of the hundredth anniversary of the ah. foundation of the Chinese Communist Party. Did you like that segue from yeah, New good. Zealand housing to the alternative, which is you know one one leap from uh, filthy capitalism and wet 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 and cold houses to uh, the Chinese Communist Party? Yes, Chinese communism with um, capitalism with Chinese communism characteristics. Yes, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, no, hundred years, and you'd have to say, and objectively, that it's been more 
successful than um, many forms of communism in terms of reducing poverty. But of well, course, there's a billion, you know, a billion Chinese people have been brought out of poverty. You know, we, we, you often get at the World Economic Forum when people are talking about this kind of thing. They'll say, well, a, a billion people have been brought out of poverty. Of course, most of them are Chinese. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Vietnam has done that as well to some extent, Thailand, Malaysia. Um, and so there are, and Singapore is a really good mm-hmm. example of, of someone who professed to be anti-communist, um, was actually brought up as a socialist. I'm talking about Lee Kuan Yew in, in Singapore. And to this day, the Singaporean government has as, at its foundation the aim of having affordable housing for everyone. And they subsidise uh, essentially these... Um, uh, housing Development Board flats, which some of which they sell off in the end, but they are um, affordable, um, safe housing, and it makes an enormous difference. In, yeah, and they've in done some... very well with the Sovereign Wealth Fund, and they have Tanisek, yeah. the, the Government Investment Investment Agency. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Provided we don't want to have freedom of speech, we can have oh, a flat. That's true. That's that's true. Um, I thought this, there was a lovely. Um, you know, we, we, I mentioned to you before. There's a Pew statement come out, Pew survey come out to show oh, yeah. that I think it's. Uh, 15 out of 17 countries surveyed had a lower opinion of China than, than last time. And that's, of course, because this anti-China phenomenon is being, is being fed. Um, I was quite struck watch, listening to an excellent Radio New Zealand podcast called Redline, which oh, yeah. is being done by, by Guy Nesper and, and uh, the other guy. Um, it's a little bit breathless, but one of the things that interests me most, most in it is John Key essentially saying, we have to engage with China, I wanted to engage with China... Uh, I've sold my house to somebody from China. Well, well he doesn't actually say that, uh, nor does he disclose quite how much it was sold for. But, you know, I, I tend to favour the John Key argument that we cannot ignore it, we have to engage with it, and then there's these enormous political risks. I, I was really struck with, um, you know, we've, we've done a bit about Xi Jinping trying to make China cuddly, uh, and unfortunately the uh, the uh, Global Times, the, the Chinese propaganda outlet, effectively um, kind of... Kind of uh, Possibly not, not, not deliberately put this in a rather weird sense today, which said, talking about the ceremony on the 100th anniversary, said the ceremony reached a climax with cheers when she announced Chinese people will never allow any outside force to bully, oppress or subjugate us. Anyone who attempts to do so will be battered before the Iron Great Wall built with the flesh and blood of over 1.4 billion Chinese people. So nothing to worry about from China other than being... <laughs> You know, beaten by beaten on the Great Chinese War. Yes, yeah. No, it's. I mean, I, I get the engagement thing, and you know, as long as um, trust but verify, um, you know, you're you're looking after yourself as you do it. It's the naive um, engagement which is which is the problem. Um, and I must say, I take a slightly less charitable view, having watched. A, um, a trainer of uh, Chinese military intelligence agents um, being a list MP in the New Zealand Parliament and the chair of the Foreign Affairs and Defence Yeah, it was an outrage. Committee. It was an absolute outrage. On the other hand, um, the, the, the RNZ podcast is also quite interesting on the subject of Anne-Marie Brady and her claims of having had her tyres let down and so on and who was behind it. There's a, a real question mark over that, despite her extraordinary, to me, courage and, and academic skill. Yeah. Shall we, shall we talk to any of the people who are yes, sitting there? Yes, I'd love to, love to hear from um, our, our regular um, yeah. uh, huge number. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Raf, you've got your hand up. So, uh, John, I'll come to you in a second. Raf, put us up uh, inevitably first. Hold on one second. Come on, come in, Raf. Oh, um, sorry, Jonathan, I, I pressed the button on you first. Raf, would you wait one moment, please? Jonathan, go right ahead. Go ahead, Jonathan. Hmm. Ah. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, we should be able to hear you when we can't. Hang on. If I turn if I turn the mics on, we're going to get terrible feedback from you. Um, try it. Ah, uh, yeah, I can hear yeah, you. Go can. ahead, Jonathan. Thank you. I'm yep. sorry. It was my fault, actually. Uh, that means that uh, 2015 is when you were 20, and that period after 2008, 2009 really is the cutoff of um, for people who are graduating into that economy with those housing costs and that housing prospect. It's really tough unless you can um, somehow leverage up the equity of your 
parents or relations who were in the market before then. The market really took off in 2002-03 uh, thanks to the banks unleashing a torrent of um, lending into the market and and also the government of the time essentially deciding not to bring in a capital gains tax which everyone saw as the biggest free kick of all time. Mm. And um, So Jonathan just really needs to work incredibly hard and talk, talk nicely to his parents, is that right? Yeah, well, um, and fill his boots. Yeah, or um, have a good look at uh, Seek for those job ads in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and Perth. Jonathan, have you bought have there. you bought the house that you were talking about a couple of weeks ago? No, Excellent! Congratulations! Yeah. yeah, yeah, a lifetime of a, a lifetime of debt. Um, no, 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 a lifetime of glorious leverage. Yeah, um, and that's the that's the thing. Congratulations, Jonathan! I'm really, really um, glad to hear it. I, whenever I hear of some young person who's managed to somehow get their get their um, little bit of leverage into the market so that they can benefit from this craziness. Um, it always makes me happy, although uh, for every one person I know there's nine who have... Yeah, and then I worry about the, mill, the millstone house factor, but shall I let's just bring Rafa now. Rafa, sorry, you're coming in now. Thank you. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good to hear from you again, Rafa. Yeah, I'll take none of your rudeness this week, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you, you, I think you missed the missed the the, the Rumsfeld the Rumsfeld um, memorial section, but yeah, there's also a fabulous film of him with, with essentially him being interviewed. Where you, you never see the interviewer, and he's just uh, straight to camera. And his complete lack of contrition or self-awareness is absolutely flabbergasting. It's well worth watching, if you're a mad documentary follower like me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, old-style old, old style conservative politics, because I don't think he would have been a Trumpist. You know, he's, he's very much in that mold of the... Well, He's, he's, he's an even harder-assed version of Kissinger without the intelligence. Yeah, but there's something about those American defence secretaries who never really are contrite. So McNamara in particular, mm -hmm. uh, who was a Democrat. But, well, actually, um, no, but McNamara did, was contrite. You know, he apologised. Mm -hmm. he, he, I think I told you this weird thing that I, I, I once uh, looked at moving into his flat in uh, Washington, <laughs> and it was really extraordinary because I... Yeah, yeah, it was... It was I mean, he was he just died, so I wasn't living in with him. But, you know, he realised what had gone on. And also, of course, he was trying to use data and data science to win the Vietnam War. Um, and and he, I think he did show contrition, but I don't think that's yes. and, and it's true that um, his, it was his um, idea to come up with the Pentagon Papers, uh, which, mm. which in the end we saw trouble over. It was a bit too late. That's right. That's right. Sorry, Raf. Um, what did you want? What, how can we help? Have you bought a house lately, Raf? Oh, good on you. But it is all dependent on having the deposit. That's the key thing. I can discuss that quite happily, <laughs> thanks, Ray.
We don't know anybody like that. But carry on. No, 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 no. no, no. no I, I'm, I'm listening because um, this is a, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And and the incentives of the system mean that if you're in your twenties or thirties, when you've got that energy and that drive to start businesses and do new things, and you're thinking, right, I'll go out on my own, I'll do a startup. When you actually think about the risks of not being able to get access to that capital just for housing, then it forces you into you know full time salaried employment. Yeah, I think this is, a critical, issue. This is yeah. a critical issue. Certainly a critical critical issue in the United States, where, where health becomes you know, not only real estate but health then becomes the thing that makes you turns mm. you into a wage slave. But but I think this is true, Bernard, here that the startup culture needs in New Zealand needs a more a more rounded a rounded view about. People's wealth and so on, and I, and I absolutely understand, Raf, as a um, as a uh, an aging an aging person who would uh, probably like to buy a house in New Zealand, but of course I have some in other places. Hmm. <clears throat> As long as you stop eating um, mashed avocado on toast, um, we'll be all right. No, no, no it's, a, it's a thing. Yeah. Um, and um, you're absolutely right about the financing. It's a real issue now because a lot of the money for the deposits will need to come from people in their 50s and 60s, mm. giving it to their kids. I'm not giving it to anybody. No. I'm giving it myself for the money. And, and also, that deposit will then be put into an off-the-plan apartment, which banks are also reluctant to lend mm. on. So one of the risks here is that to solve the problem, the government needs to ensure that there is financing for the um, higher-density apartments and townhouses, small apartments and townhouses, that um, first home buyers will need to buy now, and that those financiers will also have to lend money to the boomers and the boomer adjacents who will have to provide withdrawn equity from their houses as the deposits for people underneath them, let alone the poor kids who don't have um, parents with property. So um, it's, a, it's a real, it's a, it's a Gordian knot of all sorts of things getting in the way of solving the problem. Hey, everyone, I think we're going to have to beetle off now because yeah. we're into our um, <laughs> second hour. Thank you very much, Raf. Thanks, Jonathan. And Tim, do you want to say anything just before we, before we put on the, the, um, the jazzy music? <laughs> No, all right. No. We'll, we'll we'll log off and sign off. Yes, Thanks yes. very much, and don't don't forget to read and hear our stuff on the spin-off. Absolutely, Peter Bale. Thank you very much. I'm Bernard Hickey, and that was New Zealand over the horizon on the Kaka. <laughs>